today I'm having a guest with Tim Summers, who I will do a more formal intro for when I'm off mic, but I think the best way to start is for you to introduce yourself. Tim, what do you do and uh, what is your place in the world? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I am uh, I'm a musicologist, so I'm somebody who studies music. That's really my my job. Um, music researcher. I teach and research music, and my particular area of research is uh, film and television, but mostly video game music. That's what I spend most of my time uh, researching and and finding out about. And so, um, what my research works on, my main concern is working out and thinking about the role of music in media, and particularly games, and the experiences that music and these amazing media give to the audiences. What is it that music is doing in these in the media, and how is that contributing to the experience of games and film and television and all these things that we love to engage with? Um, so that's my main research. Um, I work at Royal Holloway University of London, um, where I teach students and I do research. Um, I'm also part of a, um, a broad um, research group, a few of us across Europe, um, called the Ludo Musicology. Uh, research group and I can talk a bit more about ludomusicology if you like a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely uh, because it's a cryptic title and uh, I, I hope that is that, that that is only for the purpose of beckoning people down to figure out what it's all about. Um, but uh, no, my, uh, this is a, a matter very close to my heart because I am uh, currently ashamed and will one day be envious of myself for being able to say I'm 30, which means that I grew up with the Nintendo 64. And the um, some of the, it, it, I think we're the first generation to have fond nostalgic memories uh, associated with video game music, because obviously music is a profoundly, uh, what would you call it, nostalgic experience, as in, you know, it can attach itself to a certain age, a certain time. And when you hear that music again, it pulls you back there uh, you know, in, in a, in a very endearing way. And, um, you know, me and my father and my brother, uh, all, you know, uh, we have a very strong connection with the, uh, the music of that, of 1996 coming out in uh, 64 bit or less. <laughs> so, um, uh, so my first question there is what, you know, that would, that would, you strike me as a, you're in a similar age group to me. Maybe your early experiences were were like that. But what, why are you in this field? What what drew you in? That's a really good question. Um, talking about that that period of sound, I think is fascinating. I've just um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about all about the music of the Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time, specifically about that sound of that of that console the greatest ever video game soundtrack let's just draw not not too hard a line but for me that is not for everyone a lot of people say final fantasy 7 but for me it's ocarina i love it <laughs> i mean it's it, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving that that wonderful it's a, yeah. it's a brilliant game um yeah i think the nostalgia crash i think is interesting video game music is exceptionally good at um uh, conveying nostalgia but one of the amazing things about music and musical works is that they have to travel through time mm -hmm. because they're both something that existed in the past and that they are something that is happening now when you rehear it. So music is continually being recontextualized. So we're, we're almost able to sort of time travel a little bit when we listen to pieces of music, we're here now, we're in the past, we're doing both of those things at the same time. I think particularly with video game music, because it, um, it, is, it is tombrally the sort of 
sound of the music is so distinctive, whether that's the the square waves and uh, and pulse waves of, of chiptune music, whether it's that um, those sort of low quality samples that we hear on things like the N64. Um, and we in these games, we're often hearing the same music repeatedly. Um, and we're being entrained, and often we are we are learning how to react, to listen to the music, even sometimes how to interact with the music. And so I think that's what makes video game music really powerful for nostalgia. And the fact that you can keep recontextualizing, you can keep doing new things. I mean, take Zelda, for example. You have a look online, search YouTube for, um, let's say, um, the Kakariko Village music or the... Um, um, uh, you know, Goron City music or whatever it might be, or um, Garuda Valley, great example, right? There will be millions and millions and millions of different versions of it, right? Because music, music, music is brilliant at being able to take it and then you can kind of do your own version of it. Because you and I, if we sat down and like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do, um, we're gonna do um, like Legend of Zelda theme, right? We are not gonna sound like an N64. So we've got to make decisions, which means you can keep remaking and remaking and remaking and adapting and changing this music. So I think that's part of the reason why video game music is so good at evoking these these emotions and these uh, uh, that it knows really how to sort of ping that nostalgia. Yeah. I mean, with the, uh, this isn't going to be Zelda karaoke, I assure the listeners, but you know, when, when you say Goron City, I just hear, you know, doom, doom. And, uh, you know, th that'll be weird to people who haven't heard it, but you're, you know, you and I are already back there and, and uh, go on. Yeah, but you're right. But also you just said we are back there and there's that really both there as in, in our bedrooms, our living rooms playing the games, but we're also there in that place, yeah. in that virtual world. Um, because music is so good at, at conjuring these places. And that's the paradox, right? When we're walking around, um, our normal life. I don't know about you, but I generally don't have an orchestra following me around music everywhere I go. But amazingly, when we play with games, this music just sort of comes from the air, but it's part of how we understand understand these worlds. Um, that, and when you, you were doing your wonderful imitation of the of the drums there of, of, of Goron City, the other thing that is, um, I think ties into this, is the way that games, and particularly games of a franchise, will um, make references to their musical past. And they know that players are going to get it. So in um, uh, when you get to things like, uh, I mean, Wind Waker does this a lot. Um, um, to, to a lesser extent, um, Breath of the Wild does this. Um, there will be these little musical references, and they can only be very, very small, very, very short. But because, um, you know, of these, we've heard this music so much, we'll get the references, and then we go, ah, it's that moment of reward. Yes. And so the... Um... So let's let's explore uh, the like the the, ob the objective. No, not the objective. The objective, yes, the objective of the soundtrack, um, and also a very very severe limitation of video game soundtrack, which uh, was not a limitation that was had by composers of film soundtrack. Which I, you may tell me uh, more about this, or maybe that I'm, I'm I'm barking up the wrong tree. But I get the impression that video game soundtrack was inspired in 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 a large way by by film soundtrack, but film soundtrack occupies a small moment that is fixed, uh, temporarily fixed. You have a scene that lasts for two minutes and you compose a two-minute piece of music and then it's over. Video game soundtracks have the uh, unique problem of having to score the entire experience, however long you make it, because you decide how long the experience of a game is. In many cases, when I was younger, it was too long, two, three, four hours. 
But the music has to be uh, such that it can be not irritating. You know, it, it has to be able to be on repetitively, but without without draining the listener's enthusiasm for it. So is that one of the limitations that shaped the way the way those soundtracks are composed and the way we, you know, experience them? Yeah, I think there, I think there are a few really interesting things you said there. Um, yeah, techniques of writing what we might call dynamic or interactive music or music that can expand. On its basic level, you know, it's something like Tetris, right, where you hear the first, the, you know, that same sort of 40 seconds going round and round and round and round and round, and when you lose, it stops, right? Um, and so it can be as long or short as you like. Um, and I think that's another really interesting thing about video game music. There aren't a lot of musical type of, types of music that we engage with where you hear and we expect to hear exactly the same thing repeated on the order of minutes and that's kind of okay and we're not talking about somebody playing a piece multiple times but actually identical repetition which i think is is really interesting um but yeah so composers have to know how to how to adapt to what's going on a lot of the time dynamic music um and whether that's in changing from one loop to another writing the transition from one one piece of music to another, whether that's adding in layers, and each of these has slightly different effects, how it will react to the players um, and, and the effect it will give to people playing the game. Um, in terms of um, the repetition question, um, absolutely, it is very important that it doesn't become super annoying, which uh, unfortunately, you know, there are game soundtracks that do that, and so um, uh, that, that is a real issue for many uh, composers to think about. But that's not to say we don't quite like some repetition, actually. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, people talk a lot about generative music, which is music that's kind of created on the fly, uh, and this being a kind of a solution to the problem of um, repetition, because we can just say, hey, right, we'll just have generative music, it'll never be the same, problem of repetition solved. Problem is with that, it can actually be really difficult to get distinctive, characterful, uh, meaningful um, generative music to work that way. So actually, we don't mind sometimes quite a lot of repetition, but you're right, it has to make sure that it doesn't become um, become repetitious. But this is why also the video game music looks to, yes, film, you're absolutely right, yes, film, but also things like television, where often we do tend to get chunks of music repeated, perhaps a bit more often. Um, it also looks to things like early film, um, particularly early sort of silent film and techniques from that, um, where a accompanist might have to improvise with what's going on on the screen, particularly if they were playing for a um, a film they hadn't even seen before and they just have to sort of make it up or there were um, other things going on. So it ties into all these other media and draws on all these other, other strands. Um, the other thing I wanted to just pick up from what you were saying um, is this question of limitations. And I think um, we need to be careful how we talk about limitations when we talk about video game music. If you look at um, lots of news articles about video game music, um, maybe the recent prom that was done as well. There's this kind of story that people like to tell about video game music, which is, oh, it was bleeps and bloops and now it's orchestras. Right. And we've gone from you know, square waves and pulse waves and little electronics, and now it's great because now we can use orchestras and live bands. And that's a really dangerous narrative because that's saying, you know, it used to be rubbish, but now there's this other thing that we've already established is good. It's good now because it's like this other thing. Yeah. And there's a difference between appreciating what composers did with the technologies that they had than saying, oh, well, it's limited and it's restricted. And really, if it was good, it would actually be, if it didn't have those restrictions, it would be this brilliant other thing. 
And so we have to be very careful about telling that story um, and saying, actually, you know what? You know, the sounds that N64, yeah, they weren't realistic, but we still like them as they were. Um, so I think we just have to be very careful about how we how we talk about the question of limitations. I know that's not exactly what you were saying. I know you were talking more about sort of temporal limits and the requirements of the media. But just because you said um, uh, limitations, it's something I've been thinking about the past couple of days. You're aware that part of the discussion about uh, the 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 inevitable march of technology is this idea that we're moving towards like some a utopian and that limitations are bad, a utopian future and that limitations are bad. And yes, I agree. Let's just bounce that ball around for a second that one of the things that has been very much on my mind for the last five years is that creativity, true creativity is born of limitation. If you're going to write a debut, you know, Debussy writing a prelude, you only have the 88 keys on a piano that you can't see here that I'm pointing to. I realized I was doing a gesture there. Um, the limitations are a necessary part of the uh, art. Forgive me for adjusting my microphone while I'm talking. And, uh, um, uh, and, and it, it actually, um, look, a lot of people have started to experience life the way that um, people with highly creative temperaments or maybe, uh, you know, attention, uh, attention difficulties both apply to me uh, uh, as it happens. Um, but I've been able to see how they experience life because they have had things like Netflix, they have had things like Spotify and Amazon Prime, these services that suddenly have taken the limitations away from consumption and broadened the horizon of what's possible to choose in a manner that's actually now paralyzing. People often complain or did complain in the early days of Netflix, there's too much to choose. You end up scrolling and scrolling and never selecting anything. So that's you know, that's a good, let's say, real world case of how limitations actually do provide a, a very important, uh, a, a very important part of the artistic process. You know, I, I was in a vinyl store the other day and remembered why I got into that uh, when, way of consuming music when I was 22, because you go into, you know, my local Piccadilly Records, and they're all uh, they're all as expensive or three times as expensive as a month long subscription to Spotify. So you are constrained with what you can do, and so you know uh, that that shapes the way that you behave in there. Instead of flicking and having a come one come all, I, I can have a piece of everything. You have to really commit to something. And as you were sa as you were saying, in the days when you have a limited bandwidth, you have a limited rate of data to actually output the music in and limited storage, those things all influenced the timbre of the music of things like Ocarina of Time. So for our, if, if this is something you know about for our listeners, why don't you el el elaborate a little bit on why those uh, beloved video game soundtracks of 30 years ago or, or 25 years ago sound the way that they do? Um, yeah, a, a few really interesting things that you were just saying there. Um, on the question of the limitations, yes, um, because um, you, if we look at the question of the creative process, then um, what composers and indeed most creative artists do one of the main jobs is actually defining the problem or what sometimes psychologists refer to as defining the problem space. And then you kind of fit it in. And you can yeah. see this with the way that somebody like, um, it's quite clear in something like the way that sometimes like Mozart worked, right? Because we can tell because he changed his pen, right? So um, um, the, the ink that he was using. So you can tell that, for example, he writes the melody, writes the bass, and then does the filling in. And that's a microcosm of the way that um, most creative practices work is that they have to define the problem space. This is why the blank page, the do anything, do whatever you want to is the most unhelpful kind of creative prompt uh, sort of ever. So yes. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's that's uh, really key about how that 
shapes creativity and for it to be understood, that limitation to be understood as a, um, a valuable thing in its sort of um, in that middle ground where it's not sort of too constrictive. But uh, yes, I, I, I absolutely completely agree with you on that. Um, with the question of the way those sounds um, on something like the N64 sound the way they do, um, is because um, the recording, playing back um, long stretches of music like we do when we play back an MP3 or we stream something like that, what takes up a lot of space on those little N64 cartridges. Um, even if you, one of the earlier N64 games, um, Shadows of the Empire, uses some excerpts of John Williams's score from Star Wars. It also um, uses Joe McNeely's music as well, which is recorded with an orchestra. They use it. They only have a small amount of it. It's in really low quality, but it took up so much space that they had to effectively ask for permission to put more memory in the physical cartridge to accommodate these really quite short excerpts of music. So the way that it works instead is with something like Ocarina of Time is that it uses samples, so very small chunks of uh, of musical sound that are then deployed as as individual notes. So if you look into the into something like Ocarina of Time, you can see the MIDI files, which are the files that that trigger the note data. So you can look and see. Okay, look, it's telling. You can see the code that says play this note, then this note, then this note, then this note. How do you extract that information? How do you find that MIDI data for those of us who want to go mining for it? <laughs> um, I've to be quite a little elusive here, but let's say that the Zelda fan community um, <laughs> is so resourceful. Um, but it is quite wonderful to be able to. You can find tools to do it online. If your, uh, you know, uh, your your favourite supplier of uh, of. Uh, Tim's pleading the Fifth Amendment on this one, the right not to self-incriminate. Exactly, yes. <laughs> okay, uh, Enthusiasts, um, should we say. Um, yeah, um, but it really gets down to that sort of midi-level data. But I think the really great thing is that when you are dealing with that granularity of material, when you're able to manipulate the notes in that way, um, you can really get really great effects. Um, there's a game uh, which is talked about a lot in sort of game music circles, which is Monkey Island 2, 1992, uh, fantastic game, but also it's famous for using a really advanced music engine called iMuse, and that's based on MIDI. And so what it says is that um, it's able to say when your character does this, add in these other layers. And so rather than layering two tracks of music, audio tracks, it's actually adding those instruments to the music itself. And it's able to do different branching, depending on what happens, add different endings to pieces of music seamlessly, because it's working on the note data. It's like putting a different piece of music in front of a performer rather than making a recording and then trying to edit it. Right. Okay. So just to just to cl uh, clarify for any layman in the audience, I think I, I've grasped what you're saying there is that the the MIDI data in a vi in a video game soundtrack is actually instructing the let's call it digital you know oscillators to generate new sounds as opposed to play back a recording of an already generated sound. Yes, that's right. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And in the earlier chips, you're talking about um, you're talking about pulse generators. In later models, you're looking at interference of different waveforms and samples and things like that. Um, so yeah, and that's um, it's taken a long time really for acoustic recording, like take a microphone, record somebody, to get to that same level of of being able to manipulate the music in the same way. Um, and so it's it's a really amazing. Um, uh, what you can do. And it saves 
a lot of space because um, writing out um, the note data is uh, takes far less space than um, the acoustic recordings do in terms of megabytes. So an, 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 it would be analogous to uh, having PDFs of sheet music in there as opposed to having big, you know, one, two, three gigabyte sound recordings. Yes, exactly. Right, exactly. Um, so it's um, there are all bands and MIDI, even though it's a technology that is, is, is very old now, um, still continues to play a really important part in game soundtracks because it is so small, it's so clean um, and so adaptable. Because if I've got that note data, I can send that to any kind of virtual instrument I want to. I want it to play on some drums, great, play on some drums. Um, and so play on the French horn or whatever you want to. So it's really adaptable. Um, so it's where these kind of technologies um, are used then to make the experience, I think it gets really interesting. So what is it? It's that moment of when music reacts to what you're doing or reacts to your character. Um, and in most situations, if I put on a song, if I put on a um, orchestral recording or whatever it is, I can't alter how that music goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can stop it. I can rewind it. Yeah, but I can't. I can't interact with it in the same way. I don't have. You can't put a new bar in in the sixty fourth measure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I can't say. I can't make it react to how I move, to mm. how I feel, to how I, I don't have any sort of control over it. Now, of course, if I'm playing a game, it's rare that I'm able to have a huge degree of control. It's not like I could say, oh, actually, I changed that melody, I want a different one. Maybe in some music games you can do that. But just that sense of, of interacting with music, for those of us who, you know, of course yourself, you know, if you, when you love music and that listening to music is a powerful emotional experience, that's really something, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, um, a, that's a great primer on how the music was generated in the early days of video games. And in a moment, I'll, I'll also, let's, we'll pick up on just a little observation about Shadows of the Empire. And yet again, this happens over and over for the last hundred years or so, the technology being asked to adapt to make room for the music, which I think is a indicator of how essential and important music is to us. Even though I can't remember what it was Alex Ross said in, in um, uh, I think it was listen to this. I could be wrong about that. Uh, um, the author of The Rest is Noise said something like, you know, um, composers, are, music composers are regarded as like a kind of, I'm paraphrasing, like an insubstantial form of, form of life, not very important, until they write some music that really matters to us, in which case we say we couldn't do without it and we could never have done without it. Um, it shows that the, the expansion of the technology for the video game uh, sound uh, was to make room for the great music of John Williams that we love in the same way that, you know, the 33 and a half RPM uh, record uh, LP was, I believe, designed to make room for a symphony. Yeah. Um, so that's more of an observation. It's more of a comment than a question. But, um... <laughs> no, 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 no. no. You, no you're, you're absolutely right. And I think um, the way those things, um, uh, the, the way in which technology adapts um, I think it's very easy to see, to think about technology and the content as being slightly separate things. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously on a technical level, they do sort of work that way a little bit. But actually the dialogue is far more intertwined than that. Um, and they continue to, to, to push each other um, in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, so yeah, something like, uh, but 
at the same time. We see the same aesthetic concerns coming around time and time again. You mentioned Alex Ross there, um, who also a big, um, you know, uh, a big Wagner right, big fan of Wagner. And it's fascinating to see um, the same and similar debates, aesthetic questions, really, about the experience of art, experience of particularly audiovisual art that Wagner was talking about and debating and discussing come up time and time and time again. Um, I've got a friend, um, uh, David Kanaga, who's a game developer, who's done things like Proteus um, and several other really exciting games. And, and again, we talk, we spend most of our time when we talk, talking about things like Wagner, and both why we're both really interested in modern technologies. What we're also, what we're really concerned with is, is the aesthetic questions and that uh, those moments of, of magic. And that's not to be superstitious about it, but it's that moment of the, of the where image and sound and interactivity kind of come together and, and they um, uh, connect us with that experience of, of, um, of, of humanity in a, in a weird way. They, they take us out of ourselves, they give us new experiences, and that's, that's something really to be, to be valued. Yeah, well, that's one of the really unusual things about soundtracks in general is that people don't question them when they're happening, even though it's, oh, it's, it's ostensibly a perplexing thing that you're watching a television show, you're watching a film and people are interacting and there's music in the background. That doesn't happen in real life, but you don't have any sense that it's wrong. It, 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 it strikes you as, as integral and as n not novel at all. Um, so, so uh, so I don't know. I don't know exactly what to make of that, but it's it's what you were just saying there reminds me of the quote from Brad Bird, uh, the director of The Incredibles and The Iron Giant. Um, he said something along. It was a tweet, so, and I can't dig it out right now. But I, you know, so I am paraphrasing again. But he said something like, you know, I uh, like I love music. I love visual art. I love painting. You know, I love. Um, writing, I love reading, but I love film because it brings all of these things together. And I think video games are the perhaps the next step in that journey because it brings them all together and you get to shape it and interact with it. So you get to live a very heightened experience of life within a video game that, that was previously only possible to live vicariously by watching a movie. Yes, yeah, and that sense of it paying attention to to you specifically you not just a generalized audience i think yes. is 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 very powerful on the question of the background music um i think there are as we have discussions about video game music we've talked about some interactivity um but it's also important not to get too hung up on interactivity again just because music responds to doesn't necessarily make it better you know it right. could be terrible music and react to you or react to you badly um there's a game um called advent rising um, which um, is, uh, they spent a tremendous amount of money on the music of it. And if you listen to the music, if you sit down, let's whack the soundtrack on, uh, you find the soundtrack on, on YouTube, whatever, it's lovely music to listen to. But it was implemented terribly in the game. It's buggy, it starts and stops when it shouldn't, it's cut off. So that's an interesting example where the musical material is fantastic but actually its implementation in the game doesn't make it work. But we also don't need to not lose sight of the amount of video game music that doesn't react to you. And that doesn't make it worse. It just makes it, it's just a different, uh, a different approach. And when you were talking about background music, um, thinking about the role of background music in games, where it just, maybe it just sits in the background and that's fine because it serves a purpose of setting the scene, creating a mood, being like a, um, almost like a sonic backdrop. If you imagine like a theater scene, 
the music can act as a backdrop for other things to stand out from. Um, it might even play a role in you know drowning out some of the other ambient sound around you to help you engage with the the virtual world. Um, so I think we see more we're seeing more appreciation of of both dynamic music, interactive music, but also music that's just in the background is also important in itself. Right. So um, sorry, I, I feel like caught you in the middle of a thought there, but. Um... Well, uh, one thing we've been talking about here at Gas Music for a little while, and uh, we, we go around to uh, people who we would like to be our clients, and we try and deliver a, a small uh, sky art style masterclass, just something that will entertain and interest and maybe educate a little bit about music. And one of the divides, one of the um, transformations in the broader culture that we've been investigating and talking about is the movement from light motif and melodic music to stuff that is more timbral and more driven by percussion and is uh, more the the more important aspect of it is the quality of its production the quality of the sound uh not uh, and i'm not uh, to, to to your previous point about not wanting to shed a dim light on what was available before we're not saying low quality music was done in the past but talk to us about that if you think that's uh, a trend that you have actually seen in the world of music and more specifically in video games, a movement from leitmotif to more, uh, to less less intellectually intrusive elements, just like ostinato, ostinati. And um, yeah, whether you think that's happening in video games and, uh, you know, and, and if so, why? What's the significance of it? I think the, the yeah, future things there. Um, I think the leitmotif has, has always been a bit tricky for games in some ways. Um, it's great for cutscenes. It can be tricky for um, background um, for sort of level music because of how it attaches itself to the visual specifics. And if you're playing one character, then you're not just going to want to hear that character's leitmotif the whole time. Yeah. It's not. It's the, the sort of relationship between the object the leitmotif is attached to. Um, and the, the viewer and listener is, is a bit different. Though that's not to say that there aren't excellent examples of leitmotif work in games as well. Of course, because Ocarina is like the grand example of leitmotif-driven uh, video games, isn't it? So, um, um, so, uh, so, sorry, I got a bit distracted. My phone just said you're running out of storage and it's currently recording video on my end. Um, yeah, um, so, so, but Ocarina was necessarily driven by leitmotif because the whole experience of the game was you play tunes into it, to put it simply, you play a melody in with the controller. Um, and, and I get the sense that you were saying that, you know, it's difficult to have leitmotif driven music in video games because often in films, it synchronizes with the action that's happening on the screen in a way that it can't in video games because you're controlling when those sync points would change. Um, so maybe there's a different reason that the transformation is happening in video games, if it is happening. Uh, partly, and also because of the not just what's happening, but where you're looking. And one of my PhD students, um, Steve Tatlow, has been writing about this recently. Um, has been it's when you have, um, particularly when you think about synchronization of image in a game, if you have a lot of agency to be able to do other things, um, that even if the synchronization with the event is happening might be might be working, but it's not necessarily if you're maybe you're looking in the wrong direction. It has to be. The sort of visual connection as well. Um, the question of the um, ambience and sort of the the change in production, I think it's quite tricky to generalize in terms of games. Because okay. if we look back at something like Super Metroid on the snares, um, that might fit your definition of 
the kinds of music you're speaking about quite well. Um, and because of what we were talking about earlier about the repetition question and ostinati, then ostinati have always been quite a big part in, in games um, because of that sort of looping dimension. But what I do think is interesting, I'm fascinated by the, the role of ambient music in our culture and how that is changing and becoming more prevalent across across media um so yeah moving and i think it's tying into what you were saying about technologies of production and reception you know where people listening on headphones home cinemas you know home reproduction of, of sound um but also maybe says something kind of culturally as well you know you listen you look you listen to the these youtube channels of you know lo-fi beats and things like this they're sort of nostalgic they're ambient as well they sit in this Sort of atmospheric space where there isn't the same sort of forward direction they have this sort of sustained quality to them um i see a lot of that in video game music if you look at most of the dungeon music in ocarina of time for example yeah. it hits that definition of ambient music pretty nicely yes yes i'm trying to remember the uh, the dungeon musics but that was um and we're, I'm going to refrain from doing a deep dive analysis of Ocarina because you know I haven't I haven't done my research for this. I think you could probably do a monologue on that. I get the sense, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's one of the great ways that they had a shift in the the tenor of the whole game and how serious things became. When you know the first one in the Deku Tree, uh, I hope I'm saying that right. When you you know you've been in um, uh, where where, does, where is Link born and raised? What's the village called? Oh. Um... Uh, Kikiri Village, Forest, Kikiri Forest. Kikiri Forest. And it's very, uh, you know, it's, 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 whether it intentionally or not, it's informed by Lord of the Rings, the Shire, the innocence of the Shire. It's all nature, it's all green, and, and, and everyone's children, you know, they're, they're all children, and it's the innocence and naivety. You go into the Deku tree, and suddenly there's this, this real shift in tone that I think is almost like, you know, how fairy tales and nursery rhymes have a darkness to them to inform kids about the world they're about to enter. And it becomes much more mature and much more, there's a real threat. And that is indicated by the lack of any motif and, and thematic music. It's, it, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore. Yes, yes. And that moment's actually uh, really striking. It also articulates, I think, how video games are able to, I think, get away with a, incredible amount of stylistic divergence, you know, where you can have games with really radically different stylistic moments. Um, and it's kind of not a problem in the same way as it might be for film. Um, but you're right, you go into the decadry, you've had the um, Kikiri Forest music, which is quite twee, it's got a bit of harpsichord in it, mm -hmm. quite sort of decorative music, it's almost, it's yeah, it's um, that sort of bucolic thing. And you go into decadry, and instead, you know, there isn't a melody. Instead, that piece works by having a limited selection of notes but they're not heard in the same order. They just, apart from when the cue as a whole repeats, it just uses a set of notes that are just ambient. It has a it has a coherence to it because it's only that set of, set of um, six or whatever it is notes, I can't remember. Um, and it's only really one sound. So, but it, again, it doesn't repeat. It doesn't have, it's not memorable. Um, you, know, you mentioned that you don't necessarily remember some of the, the um, um dungeon music so well i think that's deliberate you're not mm. supposed to remember you might remember how it makes you feel mm. um but it's not the memorable stuff it's not the the tunes for the characters or the um or rather the tunes for the um well-known locations and things like that it's doing a different job um so even within that one example you see quite a variety of the ways that video game music is working yes yes absolutely i mean we i could we could do a whole um 
We could do a whole two hours on this. And maybe that's something we should come back to in the future. We should do a revisit on Ocarina because it probably does deserve a lot more of our attention, a lot more research, prior research. Because, you know, I mean, it's very, it's just, it's such an important part of my life. It makes me, it does make me quite emotional to think about it because it was informative, like a fairy tale, like a nursery rhyme. One of my friends pointed out that um, the experience of playing that game is telling you something about what the experience of growing up is going to be like. Because when you're a young Link, you're, you know, everyone's laughing, everyone responds to you with a bit of a twee patronization, but they're quite nice to you. You go, in, you go into the Temple of Time, you take the, uh, I believe it's the Master Sword, is it? You know, and you grow up, you age, he ages for seven years, and you come out and everything is dark and there are problems to solve and there are no friendly faces. And that, that has been what the experience of growing up has been like for people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is. I mean, that moment of, of, of when, you, when you walk out of the temple and the market is, has been you know, decimated and you've got the screaming sort of um, uh, re-deads, the mummies. Um, yeah, it's shocking. Um, and again, the soundscape is part of that because that it's a musical absence at that point. You yeah. know, the lovely twee music of the uh, of the castle town is gone. Yeah, that's gone. Yeah. Instead, howling wind. Yeah. Screaming mummies. Right. Yeah. And it's just you go, wow! It's such a shocking moment. Um, but yeah, that analogy of, of kind of kind of growing up in it is 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 definitely there. Uh, and the whole thing has that slightly sort of melancholic air to it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And I do think it's kind of, I think it's, you know, I think it's a miraculous game of sorts that it was, you know, because it came out of Japan and it it looks, I don't, I'm going to get, if, if this gets out on the internet, I'm going to get ransacked for not knowing my, you know, not having done my due diligence. But, you know, it's a Japanese game, but it looks heavily influenced by the kind of European mythology that we grew up with. So seeing that go through that lens and come out again in a way that was like really profound, um, I guess it, it's a testament to how much we can learn from each other and how much you can see what your own culture is like once you've seen it through another lens, you know? Yes, I think um, particularly in the way that both musically and more generally, there's a whole interesting piece around um, how video game music addresses different audiences in different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at something like the early Gran Turismo games, where they would be recently with a different soundtrack than they would in Japan to they would in in Europe and North America, mm-hmm. um, and how that speaks to musical interpretations, musical expectations, and um, how musical genres are received in different different ways and you can see it how different games that uh, particularly japanese games how they are marketed whether they are marketed um primarily um there's a term that's used um sometimes to discuss uh, this phenomenon um and i can't remember the um author's name off the top of my head to my shame um who talks about um the cultural odor and the idea that some uh, particularly sort of by games, you know, some games are presented as though they are, they might, they might come from Japan, but they are not presented in a way that accentuates that aspect of their origin. Whereas other games, um, and so Ocarina of Time perhaps doesn't draw attention to the fact that it's very obviously that it is um, a Japanese game, unless you're pretty familiar with, you know, gaming conventions, things like that, the origins. But then if you look at something like um, Katamari Damashi, you know, something which really uh, accentuates um, its cultural origins, both musically um, and um, and more generally as well. There's a nice piece of writing by William Gibbons about this. Um, um, I should probably try and find the um, that reference for um, cultural odor because I should really remember who that is. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you've got you've got my email, so we can bob it in the description afterwards. 
Um, so uh, something I, I, I would like to um, explore now is, is two, two aspects, uh, two aspects, two topics to cover. Um, one is we mentioned earlier the dangers or the, uh, the things you will miss if you view the slow march of technology as some kind of constant only an improvement and that things are only getting better and better and better. And um, what do you think has changed about the nature of creating and implementing video game music now? I am not as clued up for games now uh, as I once was. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was mostly gaming extensively last when I was about 18 to 21. So this is about nine years ago now, you know. So we're talking Xbox 360 era. We're talking Modern Warfare, which has Hans Zimmer composing for it. Uh, Grand Theft Auto, th those games are much more like a kind of Tarantino Scorsese film. They have lots of popular music in them. And again, those are all recordings. There's not generative. So uh, just uh, you know, uh, uh, let free associate on that shift on what what you know what has uh, how we have we lost anything with the fact that we can now have these gigabytes of recording data or uh, we can download keep downloading new music uh, on the fly. You know, have we lost something or is it getting better? I think it's. I think what we're seeing is a greater variety. I think because if you mentioned, a, uh, and I of course completely agree about the dangers of seeing uh, this sort of march of progress sort of thing. And one of the fascinating things about game culture and game music culture is how it has countercurrents. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, you know, newer, faster, you know, better graphics, new, whatever the latest um, visual techniques people want to shout about. Um, at the same time, look at all the games that are doing extremely well through retro aesthetics and are actually deliberately choosing to ape older styles so what i think we're seeing is a is a, a multiplicity of approaches which is really nice to see um and the diversity there's not just one way to score uh, to score a game to have so yeah you could go down the orchestral route you could go down um if your aesthetic style is different you might be end up doing something that is actually radically different um i think in terms of it sort of like an industry perspective i think the how integrated music is into the broader marketing and sort of strategy of a game, I think is more um, aware than it used to be. Um, so particularly how music can be used as a way to connect uh, with audiences through through soundtracks, through licensing agreements, through that broader um, sort of sweep of music in a, um, in, a, in a broader context where music and the soundtrack for a game can be a really important part of how the game itself is marketed, whether that's through having a famous composer or having a soundtrack as an add-on for the doubt for a, if you buy the game but you want to buy a premium version, you can have the yeah. soundtrack that comes with it. Um, whether that goes on YouTube as a, as a release that helps drive people then towards the um, towards the game, whether they're for other promotional materials. So I think there's a um, and I think there's much more awareness now on the part of game companies and game composers um, about how game soundtracks are that the whole fandom dimension to it, how game soundtracks are received and understood, um, and how they are how can they become part of a broader strategy of how a game uh, works. Whether at that you're talking at the very highest level of um of sort of AAA titles or whether you're talking about indie developers as well yes now, it's interesting on the AAA point that you just you know you did just uh, remind me that i downloaded i downloaded gta 5 again on steam like sort of several years later but just to be you know i'm 29 i'm nostalgic i want to relive this and they've got radio stations by like frank ocean which weren't there when i first played it and 
the, uh, it says, oh, I get it. Now everything's connected to the internet constantly. You can keep updating the game. But the danger of that is it involves the non-committal aspect we were talking about that comes with Netflix and Spotify culture. Uh, um, that's that's a repudiation of what what we were t- what I was talking about with vinyl culture. You had to commit to something, and those commitments and limitations actually shaped the, and, and sometimes sometimes facilitated the quality of things. So I I do think there's as we were saying, it's not a slow march of progress uh, ever upward. There, there may be something that we lose by being able to constantly update and not commit to things. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what happens when um, it's not a continual additive process, but things are removed, things are changed? Yes. Um, you see this with MMORPGs and things like that, where pieces of music that are important to people are changed. It doesn't sound like it should. Um, and remakes are interesting in this way as, as well, about what changes, what doesn't, or in the case of availability, mm-hmm. um, where you you know we now have generations of games that were available only digitally on certain stores that are now closed. Yes. You know, what happens to those games, those soundtracks, the, the preservation question, um, both musically and generally, of, of that is a is a big thing. Or when um, the digital distribution stuff only is pulled, perhaps because of um, a, a song license will expire. You yeah. know, so many games that come off Steam because a music license lapses. The same thing happens in the world of yeah, uh, TV, uh, things that are on streaming services. Often, yeah, they just end, run out the license agreement and a song that defined a moment in a TV show goes forever. I just finished The Sopranos the other day and um, it's well known for its use of Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And if if now they said, okay, the license has expired, renegotiate, it's $12 million and they said, we're not paying for it. You say, okay, that song comes out, you lose that scene forever. And so, you know, it, it, things can... things in the world of consumable media now imitate life in that they can live, but they can also die a death. I remember being kind of struck when I, it dawned on me for the first time. I played a lot of online, like I said, Call of Duty when I was 16. And then I thought, you know, I said to one of my more savvy friends who games a lot, you know, I wonder, do people still play Modern Warfare 1, you know, online? He said, no, those, well, then maybe they do, I don't know. But for example, those servers have very few people on them now. The experience of the game is shaped by time in a way that it wasn't before. Yes, and it's interesting talking to kind of composers and developers about this, and some of them uh, really lament it. Um, others I've spoken to, um, perhaps more composers, are a bit more resigned to it and said, "You know what? That was that was that artwork, that was that piece of art, piece of media, whatever you want to talk about it, and it was for that time. It was for that generation of technology. It had its time. That was its place. That was its moment." And now it's, and now it's gone, and that's that's okay. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily. It's almost like a um, sort of almost like a, a reconciling with grief or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. sort of saying it's it's gone, and that's that's okay. You know, it had its beautiful moment. It was a thing. Yes, you know, moments don't come twice. We don't get moments. Don't happen twice. Uh, it's part of nature, human nature. But and it goes, and that's okay. So it's um. But I perhaps I tend much more towards the perhaps it's the academic in me, and it's the uh, I'm much more of the kind of oh, gotta save it, gotta make sure it doesn't go, let's capture it so we can keep it and analyze it and look at yeah. it again. Well, that's it. You know, academia in some sense is in the business, the paradoxical business of preservation, but also exploration. It's looking back to the past to try and discover where we should go in the future. And so let's maybe let's maybe have that as our springboard for a final topic as we come up on the hour. Um, imagine that, uh, you know, so so we go, we're going, 
We're going to be talking in a few weeks to Crispin Hans, who's instrumental in the audio and uh, the music production for Minecraft. And I, I wondered if you could just give me your um, perspective on, 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 on this thought that, that, that occurred to me recently. You were talking about not everything, not, not every successful game now is indulging in modern highfalutin graphics. A lot of them are having a kind of retro aesthetic. You know, I looked at the two, others, the top three best-selling games of all time. Um, and I believe number one was Minecraft and number two was Tetris. Both games that involve moving blocks around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Very, very low resolution. Yeah. What block sell. I think block sell. That's what you got to do. That's what we look how look how look how well it's done for Lego. They've done pretty well. No, I'm being I'm being. Um, okay, but good think, a good comparison uh, <laughs> there. Um, but no, I think um, what it speaks to. I think there's something on, on an aggressively practical level, right? You're talking about fundamental game mechanics that could be easily ported across lots of devices, mm -hmm. so it can it can proliferate, right? Um, which I think works really well. But we're also talking about the importance of. Uh, of game, really solid game mechanics. You, know, you look at something like Tetris and Minecraft, they work because at the fundamental core, it's got a, um, it's a marrying of um, a excellent ludic conceit. So ludic being referring to rules of play. Um, so that's the, kind of the mechanics side of things then. The mechanics are really solid, they work really well, and they are married with this compelling, um, uh, um, dimension of of the the dressing of it, you know, and and particularly the you know, Tetris originally with the you know, those great you know, the the Russian folk tune they had in that, um, da -da 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 in that, um, you know, the and and it being marketed also initially as being this sort of Russian product, it was marketed quite explicitly as being so you know it's this sort of at one point it had the tagline of from Russia with fun, which is great, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, and with Minecraft it has such a compelling aesthetic, it's striking. It's, it's it's interesting to look at. Um, so I think it's it's getting both of those things together. I think is the key to, to to successful games. And as such, I think music plays a huge part in that. And music, one of the reasons I'm obsessed with video game music is because it sits as a microcosm of that combination. We talk about video games often as being a combination of the ludic, the the mechanics and rules and play, and the narrative, the stories and worlds. And both music and video games will generally fuse those things together. And when they do it in a really compelling way, in a way that communicates easily to people, Minecraft and Tetris also, uh, they don't have problems with language barriers, for example, in the same sort of way. Um, you know, they, they transmit, they translate really, really well. And so it becomes that real fusion of exciting and interesting things on both of those levels. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, the final point, I suppose, I'll, um, draw from what you're saying on Tetris there is that you know it's the, the it's a very abstract and very simple game mechanic it doesn't require advanced textures skins or story for you to understand how the game is working and the music is basically the same it's back to that uh square wave um I, I believe it's square wave sort of uh production um uh for, for those who want to figure out what I mean by square wave if you're watching this and don't know go and uh, go and go on wikipedia and look up uh um, you know, uh, the basics of analog synthesis, uh, but uh, the, but the, yeah, absolutely will. But um, but the, but the point is, it, the music has to make sense. The actual abstract music, the notes on their own, without any flashy production, any 
complex dynamics, any of that that we associate with recorded music has to still work. So it's like the most fundamental abstract thing working in, in, in tandem. Yeah, so that's not to lose sight of the importance of good music production and yes. the importance of good music and mixing for games is really hard to do well. Um, and the importance of what you were saying earlier, which is about how um, often the, the, the production side of music is an important aesthetic quality of the music, like when we get to lo-fi music or so much music now that relies on particular production techniques to, to give it its distinctive its distinctive qualities. Um, but there is something, um, and particularly the moment it came out, you know, they are compelling aesthetic and ludic experiences, and that's why I think those games work so well, and they communicate really clearly and easily with their audiences. Well, you obviously said ludic there, and we we went we've almost hoovered up our whole hour without exploring ludo musicology. And so I think uh, Tim, if you'd be open to it, we'd have to do this again uh, and try and explore some more stuff because there's clearly a lot to talk about here. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the risk of talking to an academic about the research. I mean, the short, the very short version is is we talk about ludomusicology, music and play, playfulness. We think that video games highlight how music is playful. And while we talk, use the word play a lot for music, we often don't really think about how important um, uh, playfulness and that whole idea of interactivity and communication um, is. For, uh, for the experience of music. So that's why we like talking about ludomusicology, music and play. Right, well, we'll, we'll explore that in another hour soon. Um, what's, there's a game called Ludo, isn't there? What, what does Ludo, does it mean something? Is it a word in a foreign language? Yeah, it's a Latin word uh, referring to play, and particularly it's a Ludo, Ludic, those are connected as the same thing. In the same way that Tetris is down to the, abs the, ab the very abstract moving blocks and the mechanic working, the music is just down to the abstract, does the, the music work on its own, and then the word Ludo, it's Latin, it's like the language from which a lot of other languages spring, so it's all dovetailing together. There you go. I do professional segues. Um, Tim, Tim Summers, where can people find you online if they're interested in what you've said and they want to read more of it or hear more of it? Uh, if you look at the Ludo Musicology website, you can find out about the research group. And also I'd point you to the SSSMG, the Society for the Study of the Sound and Music in Games, which I'm involved with. We publish a journal that has loads of stuff about music and games, everything from Zelda to Untitled to Goose Game and uh, everything in between. Well, that's really good stuff. And I presume, Tim, it's for the fact that you swerve them there, you keep off socials, you don't twit, tweet and you don't Instagram every moment of your life? Or um, I share a handle with, which is at Ludomusicology. It's not just me, there are a few of us. Um, I'm, just, I'm just terrible at social media. I just really am. I just, it scares me too much. So I, I, I share it with a, a few wonderful colleagues. That's at Ludomusicology. At Ludomusicology. Tim, this has been really good. Thank you for this. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you so much for having me um, and I really enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim.